Well, hello, everyone, and welcome today to the Toward Wholeness podcast. My name is Abby Odio. I'm one of the co-hosts here, and it is truly my great joy and privilege uh, to welcome our guest today, Diana Cuse, who, Dr. Diana Cuse, I should say, who among many things and many titles is also uh, a former professor of mind and good friend. Um, But before I get into that, I'll just share a little bit about her biography. She has a PhD from the University of Glasgow. Uh, She's an instructor in the Asian Studies program at Seattle Pacific University, teaching courses in Asian religious traditions. And she also teaches for the Seattle Pacific University Seminary, a course in the theology of religions and world religions. So given that intro, you can probably guess where we are headed today. We are going to learn from Diana and hear from some of her experience regarding just the richness and variety of world religions and how we are to think of that through the lens of our Christian faith and what that means. And I know for many of us, that can be a conversation we don't really know where to begin with. And so we're excited to have her with us to offer some wisdom and expertise in that realm. I said this was a very special guest, and I truly meant it because Diana and her husband, Jeff, when I was in college, they were my professors at Seattle Pacific University. And not just my professors, but taught a class that will always be near and dear to my heart, which was a distance learning program where a group of us traveled with them to Kyoto, Japan. I think it was about two weeks we were there and we had the opportunity to learn from them about the great religions of the world while also having this parallel conversation about our Christian faith and and how that fits in. And I have to tell you, this was the first time that I was reflecting on this today, and I don't know that I've told you this, Diana, but this was the first time I had ever left the country or the continent of North America. So I had not done a lot of traveling at that point in my life. I was in my early 20s and ended up with you and Jeff in Kyoto. And the extent to which that trip played a pivotal role in my own faith journey, I cannot overstate um, just in terms of learning about culture and religion and worldview and how all that impacts our perspective and our faith Mm -hmm. and how we navigate even the great commandments that Jesus offers to love uh, the other and love our neighbor. So Mm. I want to say, first off, just thank you for that. Thank you for kind of showing up in my story in this really profound way at such an important moment. And then thank you for being here today to really offer us kind of a guided conversation around how it is that we think about other religions of the world. So enough of me talking. I'd love to start just by offering listeners a bit of context for who you are. Diana, I know as someone who has a deep commitment to their Christian faith, but also a great knowledge and appreciation of world religions, you really kind of straddle these worlds in a unique way. And so I would love for you just to share with uh, share with us a bit about your own story and sort of how you arrived at this unique and co- somewhat uncommon intersection. Thanks so much, Abby. That was a really lovely um, introduction and you kind of brought back all my warm memories <laughs> of 2008 and that absolutely fantastic uh, trip to Japan. It was me going back to Japan and, and taking a group of students and you guys were so ready to learn and so ready to be there. It was like, how easy is that? <laughs> 
So thank you. You know, I thought I'd explain a little bit about my background because I was raised in the church. I was raised in a a family of faith. Both my parents had strong faith. They raised um, my siblings and I uh, in a church setting in, um, in, in fact, in the Church of Christ. Tradition is pretty strongly rooted in biblical text and is kind of part of the holiness movement. So your lifestyle and your and your faith came together. And I think that really is one building block of my um, my upbringing and my my faith journey. So I, I feel like I, I got really solid, yeah, training that way as a young person. But you know, I went off to college and English major, exploring all this literature. And but I was also attracted. So I, I took a non-Western survey class where we were delving into Asian religion texts, that kind of philosophical constructs that were just really kind of opening my mind to other ways of thinking in the world. And this was also, you know, fairly foundational because of those classes. Then when I finished up my, you know, my undergraduate years, I then just said, hi, I'm going to Japan and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to live in Japan. And that sounds like a great adventure. Um, So I did. I moved there and taught English for about three years in Kyoto, actually. It was like living in that context, in, the, in, in Japan, I didn't know a single soul in Japan when I went. I had nobody to fall back on. And it's, it, it was a space that I felt like my faith had to properly become my own faith. That first year was super difficult for me. I was lonely. I went to Japan without knowing a single word of Japanese. Um, I don't advise that to my <laughs> traveling. Although I love that travel, you know, go embrace a new culture, but you might want to brush up on a few words before you get (laughs) (laughs) So learning to language and learning how to work in a Japanese context, which was so incredibly different from my own Western context. So I felt that that was a very difficult year and it really pushed me out there where I had to, I, I had to rely on God. I didn't have my parents. I didn't have a family system. I didn't have the friend groups that supported me in the past. And it's where I, I feel where I really embraced my faith and learned how to trust God. So it was very formative, obviously. Um, and I also fell in love with the Japanese culture. So, you know, after that first difficult year, I learned so much. My eyes were open to the Japanese culture and the beauty of the arts, the beauty of Kyoto. It was spared in World War II, so all of its temples are intact. It's almost like a cultural heritage spot of the world. It's a very special um, location in the world. And my Japanese friends, they kind of opened my eyes to their culture, and they kind of opened my eyes to just the kind of common humanity at the at the base of us all. So, mm. yeah, I really, really was invigorated by learning so much about the Japanese culture. So all of that to say it built toward... When I finally met my husband later, I returned to the States and then we went off to to Scotland to, to study. So you're there and everywhere. I love the Scotland stories. <laughs> I've heard just a couple, but oh, sounds man. like a really rich time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I had an opportunity, you know, I hadn't really thought about pursuing PhD studies, but, you know, and I won't tell that whole story, but. Um, when I had the opportunity, you know, I- immediately I thought, yes, I, I want to delve deeper into B- Buddhism. I wanted to learn more about Buddhism, just kind of based off my experiences in Japan and also based off my earlier theological courses that I that I took in, in undergrad. I went to Pepperdine University. So, you know, and I took more religion courses than necessary. It's just always been a curiosity of mine. I just wanted to know more theological knowledge that way. 
as you're sharing, I find myself and my mind wandering back to the gardens in Kyoto that we walked through and the the temples we had the privilege to visit. And it truly is one of the more beautiful places I've ever been. And I think that's partially about the landscape and the history, but also, as you mentioned, just the culture and the people and that feeling of hospitality. I just remember that everywhere we went, we were embraced in this really beautiful way. And that piece of the experience, almost more like what I learned, I certainly have kept, but how I felt there, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like so easy to access, which again, I think is is telling of some of what you experience. I think that's some of what you're describing as well. I love this notion that you are in a place where I would say Christian faith, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Christian faith is probably not the primary religious no. influence in, in Kyoto. Sure. And and yet you are, so you're submersed in mm-hmm. in a different culture with a, a different religious paradigm, and you simultaneously find yourself falling in love with that culture and those people, and also really deepening your connection to Christ. Those are my words, not yours, but <laughs> in this in this time of um, that also had challenges and and was lonely and kind of the normal levers of life were gone, and you were having right. to to learn these new ways. So I'm curious, I can't believe you didn't speak a word of Japanese. <laughs> that I'm learning now and amazes me. Um, I'm curious as you think about kind of that dichotomy of both and how has over the over time, you know, since that initial trip to d- Japan, mm-hmm. as you've leaned more deeply into the academic study of Buddhism, how has that experience opened your eyes to certain Christian teachings in a new and perhaps enriched way? How has that continued to deepen your relationship with Christ as you talked about or your faith becoming my own language that you used? Yeah. Um, has that journey continued throughout? Yes, I, I would say I'm, I'm just, I'm on the journey um, and it, it has been just wonderful. But to get at the heart of your question, I did find, and I do share with students um, throughout the years that honestly, my Buddhist study or studies in Buddhism, and I know these are academic studies, but also I have that experiential knowledge of just being in that setting in, in Japan. One of, one of the basic premises of Buddhism is that the ego self presents this huge barrier to accessing and developing any spiritual gift or, you know, you know, kind of expanding your spiritual life. And in Buddhism, this ego self is a construct, you know, it's, you know, I'm not going to go totally into that Buddhist teaching 100% here, but just to say that this ego self um, presents itself into the world. And the only way to overcome it in the Buddhist sense is to literally let go the, that, that idea of letting go. Um, and part of my, my PhD dissertation was to look at the writings of the 13th century Japanese Zen Buddhist monk. His name was Dogen. And he writes that to experience reality as it really is, one starts by studying the self. And then after studying the self, one forgets the self. And this is the first step toward spiritual maturity. And I was realizing as I was studying this, um, that this ego self is a problem also discussed, you know, in Christian teachings. And we learn that it's only when we start to cultivate the mind and heart of Christ that we begin to find 
our own true identity. And, you know, it, this ego self is kind of a construct for us as well. We, we build it, you know, out of these mm-hmm. facades. I mean, the facades can get so deep and layered that we, we hardly know who we are really with all of the build up, the build out. And, you know, Buddhists believe that, you know, the, that, that humans do this as well. But Buddhism actually steps out further and says the self is undergirded by emptiness, actually. And by this, I don't mean nothingness. It's not a nihilistic teaching, but the emptiness mm-hmm. is a kind of non-foundation foundation of the self. And, you know, this teaching, so I'm not equating them identically, but this Buddhist teaching reminded me of the Philippians 2 passage. We ought not do anything out of selfish ambition, but we are to have this same mind as Christ, who he possessed heaven, the Godhead, but he doesn't grasp onto it. He literally lets it go. And he pours himself out into human form. And this pouring, we call this the canonic love of God, you know, Jesus's self-emptying. So, and the passage, you know, the, the Philippians passage asks us to imitate Christ in this, that we also should pour ourselves out. And, you know, honestly, this Buddhist doctrine of emptiness, letting go, not grasping onto things, it really opened my eyes to the radical nature of my own Christian teaching. You know, it's something I, I still marvel at, you know, first that the creator would do something like this. And then second, that we would have the same courage and humility to follow. Just this is very, very powerful. Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking, I'm I'm realizing this is a value in the Christian tradition that that Philippians two idea of um, losing the constructed self like we develop these ways of being in the world to feel a sense of belonging and love Mm -hmm. and they protect us but they're often toxic they often don't lead to intimacy with others or with god Mm -hmm. and so we talk about kind of losing that and and learning instead to go this other way which is to trust in who god says we are Mm -hmm. uh, this identity piece but one thing we don't, I think, do particularly well, at least in the American evangelicalism that I've participated in, is the how piece of that. Mm-hmm. Like, how do, how do we actually live into that transformation? Hmm. How do we learn to let go? And, and again, I'm thinking back to my brief encounter with Buddhism in Japan, which even as I say it, I, I know that's a very varied experience. And there yeah. are so many different um, mm-hmm. layers to what that that means. But is it true that Buddhism generally has identified a how in a way that maybe <laughs> we're missing? Like I'm thinking about that night we we went up to Koyasan, I think yeah. it was the name, and we meditated. Oh yeah, um, with the monks in the middle of the. I mean, you want to talk about. <laughs> a commitment to emptying oneself and thinking through your story and offering that. Like I just, Mm. there's a real commitment to that process Uh that I've observed and participated in just on a very, very small scale within Buddhism that I feel like Christianity could really learn something from. Does that resonate at all with your experience? Well, it does. It does. And part of it is kind of taking it out of the headspace and putting it into the heart space and mm-hmm. living it right out into the world. And of course, this is everything. I mean, this is exactly what our Christianity ought to be. It's, it's the fruits of the spirit, which, you know, they are really not abstract concepts sitting out there. They are 
they are literally, you know, the hard work of developing patience and self-control and all of that. Um, and to me, those attributes, you know, it's way, way, way beyond the headspace or just kind of the the verbal I believe space, which I think, and then I, I could be speaking from my own tradition, but sometimes we get stuck in that space. And Buddhism, and I know I just discussed all of this pretty heady philosophical, you know, undergirding of emptiness and all that, but all of that is just to get the human being back into the practice space. So for the, in, you know, in Buddhism, it's the diligent day after day after day of practice. And whether, you know, in the Buddhist sense, you're practicing meditation and then taking that meditation practice, which has, you know, in the Buddhist sense, you know, created you to be actually a lot of the virtues that we talk about, you know, of, of, of creating the self-control and, you know, generating a heart of compassion. These are all teachings that can be found also in the Buddhist um, sense. But all of those things need to be put, you know, put out into the world again and mm. practiced, you know, w without practice, there's no reality in, you know, in Buddhism. Right. Yeah. And, and it encouraged, it has, it has encouraged me uh, in my Christian walk that um, there's a head and a heart that come together and all of my studies, which have been wonderful and kind of eye opening. And I really enjoy pouring over these 13th century passages. I mean, some of it's just so poetic. It's really marvelous, but how does that work out in my life? You know, how, how, how does my Christian walk, you know, how do I show that I have the courage, I have the courage to abandon my ego self, which mm. really hard to do. Sure. <laughs> Love our ego selves, you know, they give us comfort. Um, and it takes, I think it takes an enormous amount of courage to step into the space of letting go. Sure. Open hands kind of letting go. Right. I think there's a real discipline to that the ego self, at least as I understand that in my own Christian faith, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it is so embedded in how I have learned to be in the world mm -hmm. that sometimes we oversimplify that piece of things. Like there's a discipline to even gracefully attending to that part of ourself, mm -hmm. to even learning to notice the defenses that I've put up around that ego <laughs> that have become so second nature to me mm -hmm. that it's not as simple as just saying, oh, it's about violation of these rules. <laughs> or like, yep. you know, if if you've done A, B, or C, then and certainly the rules and, and law play a role in yep. the faith tradition and, and, and transformation. But I, what I love about this conversation and even just that language of ego self is that it mm -hmm. invites us it doesn't get any of us off the hook <laughs> kind of like it's, it's, it's embedded in each of our stories and, and to just be able to name that it really is a hard, deep work of getting comfortable sitting with ourselves. Maybe is the best way or right. looking, looking gracefully inward and you use the word, I think courageous. And, and that really resonates with me because I think the ego can be a very comfortable place to sit. I agree. I agree. Um, for a lot of us, it's worked really well for right. for a lot of our life. So I, yeah, I just I love that invitation uh, to to bring the head and heart together and mm -hmm. do something. <laughs> allow, um, allow Christ into our, you know, how are we going to allow God into, you know, into our homes? You know, do we allow yes. Christ? 
our cars as we drive down the street. We are transformed. Yeah. I, when I was in seminary, I took a interfaith dialogue course, and mm-hmm. it actually brought us into contact with the different faiths from Abraham. So Judaism yeah. and Muslims and was super powerful. And I mm-hmm. think up until that point in my life, certainly my early 20s, it was such a taboo thing to talk about mm-hmm. faith or other faiths or you know, if it wasn't Christian, it was wrong. So that was the first point that I actually sat across from someone who believed something fundamentally different than I did. And I was intimidated by that. I was a little bit fearful, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think we we so emphasize the differences, at least in the, the evangelical communities that I grew up in, it was what was different and wrong. And, and what I found was that when I sat down across from a Jewish person and heard them talk about something like the Sabbath, Mm -hmm. Shabbat, it brought so much texture and richness to, I just felt immediately connected to that person in like, oh my goodness, we we share things in common, really important things in common. And you've, you've touched on this a bit. And so as you've kind of studied different religions, Buddhism in particular, but I know you've studied the world religions more yeah. broadly. What commonality, what common ground have you found and how has that common ground been effective in this call that we have to love our neighbor, to listen? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe well, maybe you're familiar because um, you, you, you bring up um, the Abrahamic face. We kind of you know call it family of religions, but that really powerful document that Prince Ghazi bin Muhammad of Jordan, he initiated the the penning of this document um, in 2007. And then he had, I don't know, 180 or something Muslim clerics, and then it grew to like 300 or something um, sign, sign on to it. But it, it was called A Common Word Between Us and You. Um, yes. Islamic, yes. Okay. And the, and the Christian faith. And, you know, he's, just, you know, that basic you know, word from that document was that we have the common ground of loving God and loving our neighbor. So this really ought to be our starting point for mm-hmm. working out peace in this world. And he, he basically says that, you know, without this common precept, or it's, it's bigger than that, but without this common glue, gluing us together, this, this, the love of God and the love of our neighbor, you know, we have no hope of finding peace in this world. And the Christian leaders, including the Vatican World Council of Churches, responded very positively and, and wrote a respondence document to him. But that's one example that I that I come back to in terms of we do all have to live in this world together. Sure. <laughs> you know, so, you know, do we, do we look for the things that we can to, to, to fight about? Or if we're going to create a community, we live in a pluralistic world. It's, it's simply the definition of our world today. And sure. it's actually wonderful. You know, it's it's actually a beautiful, diverse world. And how do we live into that diversity? And how do we and how do we listen for God's voice in that diversity? If you look across the face and then even outside just the Abrahamic face, but face of the world, I would say one of the greatest commonalities is a, a heart for other people like most mm-hmm. Religions teach a morality and an ethic of care for others, yet alleviate the suffering of others, create or cultivate a generous a generous heart, feed the poor, care for the sick. These are commonalities. You find them across the board, um, even in traditions that people, you know, they 
ask, is this a religious tradition, uh, like Confucianism, for example. But there is this bond of care. And mm. um, I think that is... I think that is essential and that we um, we really ought to, to, to begin with those aspects when we are looking at a world community, which is really where we're living now. Yeah, it's a good point. We're brought into contact more and more in kind of this global world with folks with whom we probably share a lot in common and probably mm-hmm. have different convictions. And what I hear in what you're saying, too, is just the emphasis on relationship, mm-hmm. like the without relationship... <laughs> there's nowhere to go we're just I mean we're seeing that right now unfold in our country I think is right the as the echo chambers kind of double down and the division increases you're kind of stuck in that place until you recommit to the essential of seeing another and valuing their human dignity I know in my own story when I've been able to get to that place I'm the one that's gifted and blessed by the other, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's so, humility, really. Sure. Uh, you know, and that, that's a great place to start with the humility of, of understanding that God could possibly speak in avenues that are surprising to us, even though those avenues are, you know, written about in our own, you know, in our own biblical text, we have God speaking from the mouth of foreign kings, priests from sure. other religions, donkeys for goodness sake. yeah yeah that's a really good point <laughs> the elements even so even you know i mean it, god speaks would we really want to curtail god's speak to, you know to us that's one question i have when i when i encounter others um mm-hmm. and i don't believe all you know i don't believe that every world religion is the same that would you know that that would be doing damage to everybody across right. the board. So I'm not, I would never teach that, and I you know I am a committed Christian, and I and I and I keep that forefront um, in my you know communications with others. But I have heard God's voice in in other scriptures, mm-hmm. and in in you know people from from different faith backgrounds than mine. And, you know, sometimes it's a reminder and sometimes it's, it's calling me to task on some, you know, on, on aspects mm. of my own life. I'm just mindful of the tendency we have to diminish God to only working. Mm. And I'm speaking for myself personally, like to only show up in these certain avenues. And mm. it's, it is such a beautiful reminder that the God of the universe <laughs> is not, uh, and it, and if, if God could only speak to us in a certain avenues, then, then I don't know that he would be a God who is worthy of worship at that point, you know, I think that's a really, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So I'll wrap us up just with this final question. And I imagine, you know, we have a full spectrum of listeners right now. I think on the one hand, there are likely those who've grown up in a faith where you know, the exclusivity of Christ was really emphasized and for whom maybe a conversation about world religions is uncomfortable. And then on the other end, those who feel drawn to the person of Christ, perhaps, but struggle with kind of the exclusive claims of Christianity. You know, if we claim to have capital T truth, Mm -hmm. then, then we're saying essentially that all others are are wrong or misled and somehow, you know, we have stumbled upon the gold. So 
I'm curious, given your unique knowledge and perspective, if you'd have any encouragement to offer folks who find themselves either on either end of that spectrum, I, I would say. Well, I, I kind of bend back to, you know, what I already said. I, I, even our own scriptures ask us to constantly keep our ears, you know, broadly attuned to God's mm. God speaking out in the world. Um, and, you know, our one of the first witnesses to the Christ child are these religious philosophers from Persia or somewhere nearby. And they read about mm. him in the stars. I mean, this is just, it's sure. just there in terms of what we we consider our tradition or what is proper faith or, or excuse me truth avenues but that you know god spoke through the stars and led led people to christ i mean that that should be very powerful to us yeah. yes discernment so we need to discern truth and we need to you know we do have their making judgments has a place in our world but in my opinion we should really caution ourselves against the the first response of fear, we should just be open. Like, is that God speaking? You know, and, mm-hmm. and we should stay. I mean, I stay in the scriptures. I, I go back and again and again. And obviously to my scriptures, as I'm, I'm listening to other um, voices and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reading widely. So, you know, I, I think, and I, one example comes to my mind, you know, what if uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had simply dismissed Mahatma Gandhi as hmm. a Hindu speaking to Hindus. And, you know, he would have missed that wisdom of Gandhi's enactment of ahimsa, which is non-harm. Um, and it comes from ancient Hindu, Jain, and then the Buddhists pick it up as well. But this teaching of non-harm, it's, 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 it's you know, foundational to these traditions. Um, and Gandhi picks it up and he implements it into nonviolent protest you know, MLK researches and, and learns from Gandhi this way of viewing. And, and I think he realized this is a, actually, this is a Christ-like way to resist systems of oppression and to, to move for justice. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, if we close our ears to something that we feel, well, that's not our tradition, that we're going to really miss a powerful word from God. That's, mm. Yeah. That's good. As you were talking, I was thinking of First uh, Corinthians, I think it's chapter 13, where Paul writes about the, mm. you know, we see in part, yes, we see, but through a glass and, and just that notion that there's a, there are some things that we can hold on to that we know, mm-hmm. but, but mm-hmm. then there's a humility with that, right? Like we don't see it all. And so to the person who maybe thinks I've got it all figured out, there's a real invitation to humility as mm-hmm. well as an invitation to the person who thinks I can't know anything right? to, to right. kind of ground themselves in the central tenets of, of Christ. So thank you, Diana. I can't tell you um, just what this conversation means to me. And I know some of our listeners will um, resonate and appreciate the wisdom that you offer today. So well, thank you, Abby. Uh, thanks for taking the time to be here. Yeah. And I look forward to... Um, more conversations with you certainly to come. Sounds wonderful. I appreciate it. Bye now.